0: Like our changing world. Piki mai kākē mai and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance aho. Tonight, William Ray is going to set the show on fire with a panel discussion about wildfires. He's talking with experts about some of the interesting physical and social research being undertaken in New Zealand at the moment to better understand why fires burn the way they do and why we respond the way we do.
1: When you look at videos of the huge fires which have ripped through Australia this summer, you're looking at what scientists call extreme fire behaviour. Normal bushfires mostly move through the undergrowth, burning scrub and leaf litter, scorching tree trunks. These kinds of fires are dangerous, but usually they can be brought under control. Extreme fire behaviour... Is different. Massive sheets of flame reach tens of metres into the air. Entire trees go up in smoke. Swirling air currents create miniature flaming tornadoes. Embers and sparks are thrown hundreds of metres across the landscape to start new blazes downwind. These kinds of fires are much more difficult to control. Often all that can be done is to protect a few key locations and evacuate everywhere else. New Zealand has often seen itself as mostly immune to these large uncontrollable fires, but thanks to the warming climate, that's begun to change. Luckily, there are a number of local scientists working to understand the risks of fire in Aotearoa and
2: how to get people to work together to minimise that risk. Grant Pierce, I'm a Senior Fire Scientist with the Scion Rural Fire Research Group.
3: Tara Strand, Rural Fire Science Leader for the Scion Fire Research Group. Lisa Langer, I'm the
4: Lead of the Social Research. Um, I'm a Social Scientist within the Rural Fire Research Group at Scion.
5: Kia ora, Melanie Markshevoldt, I'm the CE and a Researcher at Te Tira which is also known as the Māori Biosecurity Network.
1: So there's been a huge amount of attention paid to fire overseas recently, but that sometimes masks what's going on in our own backyard.
4: We need to be concerned that our communities do not just think that wildfires occur in Australia and not um, within our own country.
3: Yes, I guess uh, just Mm. to add on to Lisa's point Mm. there, New Zealand actually had one of its largest fires in the last 20 years, but it happened about the same time as the Australian fires kicked off. And no one uh, in the media really noticed because the Australian fires were so big and this one was was in the bush.
2: This was a big tussock fire uh, near Dunedin that burned over 5,000 hectares. Wow, yeah, I completely missed that one, so that goes, <laughs> just so, so completely remote, uh, more in the high country, um, impacted on sort of the water supply for Dunedin City, but, um, yeah, again, uh, burned for multiple days and uh, involved large numbers of firefighting resources, but was one that was remote. It wasn't really impacting on any major assets Um, And so, yeah, got a little bit of media coverage but not lots because Tara said, yeah, of the more high-profile Australian fires.
1: What are we expecting to happen in terms of fire risk in New Zealand with climate
2: change? We're going to see increasing temperatures, uh, changing rainfall patterns across the country with uh, less rainfall in the eastern parts of the country and also stronger westerly winds and potentially lower relative humidity. So you combine all of those effects and that means we'll see increased fire dangers in many parts of the country, particularly the eastern and northern areas of both islands. But also, I guess, what's interesting is potentially significant increases in some of the the less fire-prone areas of the country currently. So North Otago, Coastal Otago, the Wairarapa, uh, Wanganui, Manawatu, where maybe they only get five to ten days currently, and that could increase to more like 15 days in future we could see even doubling or tripling of the number of uh, severe fire weather days.
3: Two things in this. New Zealand is tracking on the same trend as the rest of the world with this increase in fire activity, uh, increase in more extreme type fire behaviour. But also New Zealand is a narrow country and very quickly there's assets at risk.
1: So basically the fire doesn't have to travel very far before it ends up in people's backyards.
3: Exactly, yes. Yeah,
1: or threatening uh, important uh, ecosystems. So, Grant and Tara, I know you've been working on some modelling relating to wildfires. Can you explain what
2: this is? So, uh, rather than a really simple uh, assumption about the way a a a fire front moves through the landscape as a sort of a a uniform wall of flame radiating heat out in front to to dry fuels, ignite them and uh, allow the fire to spread... Uh, There's a new theory that's being developed uh, by uh, scientists in the US from the US Forest Service through lab experiments uh, that suggests that convected heat, so the heat transferred through the movement of heated air, is more important uh, than even potentially that radiated heat and transferring that heat from a spreading flame front to those unburned fuels. So this is
1: basically sort of swirling air currents around this fire, sort of pushing the flames into the fuel.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So obviously uh, when heat is generated, hot air rises, uh, and that can create sort of cycles uh, of air. Um, And we can talk about sort of turbulent structures, uh, er erratic air movements. But what this theory is suggesting is that rather than being sort of random or erratic uh, that we're seeing definite patterns within that. Uh, So areas of updraft which are pulling the heated air up, making flames taller, and then in other areas, uh, downdrafts that are pushing the flame front down uh, and horizontally along the ground and out into the fuels ahead of the fire. And what does this mean in terms of fire modelling? So if we can sort of predict... uh, the scale and size uh, of those circulation patterns, uh, then uh, we can better uh, predict, you know, when uh, changes in fire behaviour are likely to occur. So not only would we hopefully be able to predict fire spread rates more more accurately, but also uh, look at when changes to uh, ev- extreme fire behaviour might occur. So when we might see a transition of a fire from burning on the surface fuels up into the crowns of trees, when we might see firebrands being picked up and generated and thrown ahead of the flame front, uh, when we might see fire whirls uh, rotating columns of, of flame that uh, can be very dangerous to firefighters. Uh, so if we can better predict when those sorts of things can occur, then we can make firefighting safer and uh, better predict where fires are going to go. Because
1: this is the kind of fire behaviour which has got people really freaked out in Australia and also, I mean, even in New Zealand with some of the recent fires, just these conditions where it goes from being sort of a, you know, your standard bushfire to something that looks extremely big and extremely dangerous very quickly.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I guess through the media we're seeing that on a, a huge scale in the fires across Australia, but that extreme fire can occur on... Uh, any any fire basically so uh, very quickly the fire can transition from something that seems um, relatively benign and controllable to something that's uh, yeah at the other end of the scale and very very difficult if not impossible to control and is putting the lives of firefighters and, and communities at risk.
1: The other side of this is looking at smoke modelling and I know Tara this is your area of research can you explain what you're trying to look at here?
3: Yes, so we're trying to understand the amount of smoke that's coming off of a fire, and importantly, where that smoke may go. And this is because if you think about uh, the fire behavior affects uh, a certain area, but smoke can actually go many, many kilometers, as we've seen recently, as New Zealand has been hit actually pretty heavily from uh, the Australian fires overseas Um, Inside smoke, there's pollutants that can cause some some health effects and health impacts, and we want to trace those pollutants and know where those concentrations may go so that forewarning can go out to the communities and the sensitive populations that may be affected by, by that smoke. But also, uh, visibility can be affected. So, uh, planes can be grounded. Uh, There's been large accidents overseas due to thick smoke on highways. Uh, And also for tourists and the impact on tourism at some of New Zealand's pristine sites.
1: I was actually over in um, California recently when they had a big wildfire in LA. And I know it was. It was the first time I'd ever seen anything like that, but it was really unpleasant. Yes, it's very unpleasant. But I mean, aside from just being sort of, you know, disgusting smelling and to look at and to breathe, there's been some, um, you know, more recent research that it's actually really bad for people's health in the long term.
3: Yes, absolutely. So some of the research has shown that by raising the particulate levels, so these are the particles in the air, that can make it all the way into uh, your lungs and into your bloodstream, so past the body's natural self-defense, uh, that by raising the particulate concentration by only 5 uh, micrograms per meter cube, so mass per volume, uh, you will decrease um, your, your health significantly. So um, it is something to be aware of and and there is a lot of research overseas to try to give communities the tools to understand the type of action they need to take um, as they see visibility reduced you know staying inside um, not doing outdoor athletics uh, that kind of thing
1: these particulars and the thing kind of things we're worried about i mean are, are these the kind of things which are actually arriving even in new zealand from the australian bushfires
3: Yes, yes, they are absolutely. Um, they are arriving over overhead for the most part. we've been lucky in that it's been aloft, and we haven't really seen it down on the ground, although Christchurch did have a day where we could actually smell it down on the ground, which meant that that smoke was coming down and washed um, down in into you know our breathing zone
1: so when we talk about these. Um, particulates that we're worried about are they just coming from burning timber or are they coming from sort of artificial um, sources or is it just from the burning wood
3: with the bushfire, if it's uh, primarily bush, it's, it's just coming from the fuels, so the vegetation. Uh, once it enters the urban landscape, you now have your fuels as houses, warehouses, shopping malls, etc. And that does change what is carried in the smoke. And there is now uh, research undergoing to uh, sort out the different type of toxic levels that you can find in a urban Fire and those entering into the smoke and then being spread uh, far and wide um, because it's a wildfire inside the urban environment. So uh, there is ongoing research to try to determine, you know, the, I guess, arsenic levels coming off treated wood and other types of pollutants in that area.
1: Talking about fuel types, I mean, it's... We don't really think of New Zealand bush as being particularly flammable. I mean, partly because it's often dripping wet (laughs) after you've been out for a tramp and it buckets down with rain. I mean, how vulnerable are we to these kind of like really big bushfires you see in
2: in Australia or, or will we be in future? So there's been quite a bit of work done on the flammability of different species. If you look at a relative scale, you're probably going to put things like the eucalypts that we see in Australia right up near the top as some of the most flammable because of the the volatile oils and chemicals that are present in the the leaves of of those species. But here in New Zealand, we also have a number of species, both exotic and uh, and native, that are also highly flammable. So these are the shrub species like uh, gorse, like uh, manuka and kanuka, for example. So they're up there at the top. In the middle you've probably got some, you know, the plantation forest species, pines and Douglas fir, for example, coming back down through to some of the natives that are uh, generally less flammable, although some of the research shows that even some of those species are probably more flammable than a lot of people thought. Because I think one of the things which has
1: come out of Australia is you have these areas of subtropical rainforest which, you know, we were long thought to be sort of, you know, low risk for fires and they've just all gone up in smoke because they've just got dry enough.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the key learnings is that under these extreme conditions, these very extreme conditions, uh, long-term drought, the plants get stressed and the sort of the natural characteristics of those plants can break down uh, and they be- can burn quite readily when under more typical average conditions they may not so yeah I think that's an important consideration as well. I mean do you think that
1: the and maybe this isn't your area of research but do you think that some of the plantations need to be thinking a bit more carefully about fire danger? I'm thinking particularly here about manuka where we've seen quite a growth in planting with you know the, the increased value
2: of manuka honey. If you're looking at um, you know forestry plantations and the planting of uh, whatever species for, for timber then fire management is generally a key component of those uh, activities and the forestry companies are well aware of uh, the risks of fire and uh, prepare for that. Yeah certainly when it comes to other, other activities where we might be uh, looking at you know, say the honey industry for example with a very flammable species probably fire hasn't been one of the key considerations um, but it's something that uh, you know that sector needs to really be aware of and understand the potential, and then look at you know how they can prepare and manage for that.
1: Just turning to you, um, Lisa, um, I-, I saw a quote from you which really blew my mind. Which was nearly all of the three thousand wildfires that occur every year in New Zealand are caused by humans, with less than one percent from natural causes. That really blew me away. I mean, it's really that that sort of stark, is it?
4: As I understand it, and this isn't my field, but the um, level of fires ignited from natural causes such as lightning are, are not high in New Zealand. Um, so certainly um, we use fire in our communities, whether it's as a land management tool for recreation, for cultural purposes, hanging, and, and, and the like. So it's, um, it's not a deliberately lit fire, it's generally an accidentally lit fire.
1: And correct me if I'm wrong here, but your area of research is sort of looking at how aware people are of those sort of risk factors and, and what could be done to increase their awareness.
4: Yes. Well, there are two things. There's the awareness, but there's whether the awareness then translates into preparing for a wildfire.
1: I think probably the sort of fire safety campaign most Kiwis are most familiar with is that sort of guy uh, with the big white arrow and the rainbow coloured dial. I mean, do do we know? I I loved these ads when I was a kid. (laughs)
5: Because no matter where you get to this summer, there's always a risk of fire. So if you see smoke or anything suspicious, call 111 and tell them. Come on, keep it green.
4: Foreign Emergency have um, taken on board some of our past research, which did focus on the what we call the half grapefruit sign, that's often along our road signs, and certainly we did identify that um, people understood there was an increasing wildfire risk as the arrow moved from left to right. But in terms of how they should respond, what behaviour they should undertake, that's where difficulties lay.
1: Because is one of the problems that you're sort of presenting a, a sort of linear scale of fire danger when it's really sort of for the community what they need is a is a binary indicator, you know, do I or do I not light a fire?
2: The key point is that it's not a, a linear scale as you progress from one. Fire danger class to the other, that it's probably more of an exponential scale, um, and so that as the fire danger increases, the sort of potential uh, severity and consequences of a of a fire increase dramatically. Often it is a sort of a binary decision about do I do something or don't I, and I guess part of uh, the work that Lisa's sort of uh, been doing, and that Fire Emergency is sort of focusing on now, is trying to determine. What are the activities that are appropriate at the different levels and therefore what are the messages that go out to communities uh, associated uh, with those different levels?
4: But certainly within the human dimension research that I've been undertaking it's been more primarily around the rural and the lifestyle properties so that the uh, more rural side of what we call the rural-urban interface um, and we're starting to now undertake more research in where we see quite a perhaps vulnerable community, those on the urban fringe, so those actually within the suburban areas that may um, abut a, um, a rural area where a rural fire could,
1: could occur. Because, I mean, there's a lot of building... I mean, I'm in, I'm in Wellington at the moment, and there's I know there's a lot of building out into sort of um, greenfield sites, often with a hell of a lot of gorse um, all over the place. And I imagine people moving into those sort of newly built houses, the last thing on their mind is whether they're going to have to deal with a fire jumping over the back fence.
4: I um, certainly believe that there's a lot of work to be done in terms of understanding those communities that are moving in that don't have that level of awareness, certainly are not prepared. And also what we need to understand is a lot more is about their networks. So it's not just in terms of the physical preparedness, but it's um, if they're... Uh, moving into an area and don't have those um, community networks of um, communication around wildfire danger. Um, but we see that as a very vital point um, for um, communities and um, you know, certainly Maori communities.
1: Yeah, Melanie, I mean, this is your area of research. I mean, what, what are these networks and what are these sort of different messages we could be using within the sort of Maturanga Maori framework?
5: Yeah, I guess there are multiple levels of um, understandings that we can take from Dunga or from Māori learnings, uh, and some of those are around communities, as Lisa pointed out, which are vital, and so it's really important that as new communities develop, we encourage them to get to know each other, uh, to discuss plans together, and to talk about what's important in their community. And this program's research really focuses on understanding what isolated rural communities value uh, if you think of a big wildfire hitting a small town uh, potentially the resources can only save one or two things and so communities need to have had those discussions about what are the one or two things they may want to save and where they want to send their resources is it a natural heritage site, is it uh, you know homes, is it marae all those conversations are conversations that communities have to have together but to do that you have to know your neighbours uh, so communities are really important, and for Māori it tends to be a wee bit easier because Māori do congregate together in places and spaces like marae or community um, events or kura or the like. Uh, so it's certainly something that Māori can teach wider New Zealand, and we saw that in the earthquakes. Uh, but again, New Zealand communities by and large uh, like to know their neighbours. We just need to remind new subdivisions and the like that you know those are important qualities and and components of being good neighbors.
3: Also it's about raising awareness that even if you live in a suburban neighborhood the mentality that the firefighters will stop it because there's all these houses between me and the bush uh, has to start shifting and I've heard that quote from from someone I know in California the fire won't reach me because there's millions of dollars of houses between me and the fire well guess what the fire did reach that person's house and it's because these fires have entered a new level of extreme. And because of that, there now needs to be a lot of active science in the physical fire behavior space, but also in the social reaching out to communities. How do you get these messages across that, that it, has, it has shifted in such a way that the firefighters cannot put the hose on your house and mm-hmm. put it out? You cannot rely on that anyway. And you, we've seen that overseas with Australia, where the messages that went out that said, it's too late, You have to stay there. You have to find somewhere safe. It's too late for you to leave. You only have one way out. Please Mm -hmm. go to the beach, and we'll try to pick you up.
1: The images and videos that came out of that are just apocalyptic, aren't they? I mean, coming back to um, the matauranga Maori side of things, I mean, obviously fire has been used as a tool ever since there have been people in, in New Zealand. I mean, is there knowledge in there about... Um, wildfire in New Zealand which can be harnessed?
5: Yeah there definitely is, not to the same extent that there is in places like Australia because we have very different environments obviously, but definitely it's the well-known mythology around uh, Mahuika, the fire goddess and how we got fire and, and how she threw fire into certain plants and so that obviously uh, for Māori explains why certain plants have more flammability, Or, uh, but there are definitely elements in that in mātauranga or traditional and old mātauranga that we can utilise even if it's only to have the conversations with our communities.
1: Mm, Because I mean we know that humans as much as we like to think that we're all um, calm rational decision makers really mostly react to emotions and storytelling and things like that and I guess that those traditional stories make great vehicles for that kind of communication.
5: Yeah, definitely. I mean, if we were rational, then a lot of our um, campaigns on TV would work, wouldn't they? None of us would drink alcohol or (laughs) smoke cigarettes because we all know it's bad for us. Um, Or
1: light fires in the bush, I guess. That's
5: right, or light fires in the bush. So definitely we need to find stories that resonate with people, uh, that tug on their heartstrings, I suppose, uh, but resonate with their core values. And again, that's what traditional stories are useful for, um, not only for Māori, but also for New Zealanders who resonate with that culture as well.
1: One of the um, ads I've seen a lot recently on social media is these sort of little pictures of native birds holding signs saying highly flammable. I mean, it has been interesting to see that in Australia, I mean, the the thing that has really grabbed public attention has not necessarily been this, you know, the huge numbers of square kilometres that have been burned and these sort of images of huge leaping flames, but the images of sort of, you know, burned koalas and wombats
2: so really it's about understanding what people really value and so wildlife is one of the things that certainly is important here in New Zealand, our native species, so fens are using that to uh, try and encourage people to be careful around fire so that they can protect those, those native species. This is a slightly grim thought
1: but um, do we slightly benefit by the fact that our sort of increasing fire risk is likely to slightly lag, the increasing fire risk of places like Australia and California, where we are seeing these huge fires and maybe give people a bit of a wake-up call here.
3: Certainly New Zealand uh, benefits from its maritime climate, and it's that maritime climate that provides us this lag. Uh, In the tendency for the fire behavior to increase in its extremists. We are on that same trend. We do know we're, you know, we've seen recently uh, that we're evidence that we're heading in that same direction, and all our climate models, of course, point uh, that we are heading and we're tracking with, with the large continental fire prone countries. Uh, But because we have this maritime climate that does provide us this buffer, it allows us to develop our science tools and technology and work with communities uh, to put ourselves in front, to prepare, to maybe even develop some tools that can be used globally uh, for these type of fires and messaging to the communities for these type of fires.
1: And just on these new tools, I mean... Where are you hoping this will get to? Like, because we've got all these new technologies, like drones and and um, cheaper access to satellites and things like this. What's the sort of long term goal?
3: So there's two two types of goal, and the first one is the te- technological goal, and that is if you if you see that overseas we've had all of all of these communities, um, a couple of them major, in the last couple of years overrun. Um, with several deaths, and for me, my passion is well. Why we have this age of instant communication, this age of knowledge? So why is this happening? And I think it's it's happening for two reasons. One, the fire behavior is is changing so fast that it's going outside the knowledge of, of the operational knowledge. It's going outside the community knowledge, but also there is still the community. Mentality that if it enters the suburban area, if it enters my community, I have faith, the fire trucks will come and they 'll put it out, and so there 's some messaging involved there as well and I think there 's also new technology that can help us with that messaging real time uh, sensors, uh, fast communication that pushes text. Um, systems that can be developed in remote communities, you know, where it's just you know air horns that can go off. Um, there are tools that can get put in place ahead of time. If you think about our tsunami warning, that would be an example uh, that can help us uh, notify when the fire has gone outside its standard standard behavior. And then the, the second vision is really that messaging and, and preparing communities, both these remote rural communities, as, as Mel mentioned earlier, and Northland to think about the problem, think about the issue, um, determine what the values are, what should the resourcing be go for, and using – all of the knowledge sources, whether it's operational science or mataranga, to prepare. I mean, could we put things in place um, that slows the fire, that knocks the fire out of this extreme behaviour, and then firefighters can get on top of it. So I guess that's the long-term goal. That's the direction that we're all passionate about.
0: Thanks, Tara. That was Tara Strand from Sion. We also heard from Grant Pierce and Lisa Langer, who are also at Sion and from Melanie Mark Shadbolt from Te Tira Whakamātaki, the Māori Biosecurity Network, and the story was produced by William Ray. To listen to that story again, just head to our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash Our Changing World, or just open your favourite podcast app. If you'd like to stay in touch, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter as RNZ Science. Many thanks for your company. I'll be back next week. But until then, it's good night from me, Alison Balance. Kia pai toupo. Botox Cosmetic, Auto botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you.